Hello. Hi. Welcome. To Crime Italian on the Rocks. And we are in the podcast nook today. <laughs> I love our podcast nook. We may have had a late night last night, so if my voice sounds weird, it's... May have had a late night? Because we had a late night last night. No, that wasn't night. That was day. Or morning. We came yeah. home this morning. And now we're <laughs> recording this morning. <laughs> And just drinking more, because why not? Because we have a cocktail to tell we you about. We have a cocktail to tell you about. It's so pretty. So this is the aviation cocktail. And I know that you have had this before. I love how it looks. So it is a gin cocktail. It's two ounces of gin, a half ounce of maraschino liqueur, a half ounce creme de violette, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, and a cherry garnish. Which is... It's, the purple color is just so pretty. So I actually recently had this cocktail in Berkeley when I was away, and instead of creme de violette, they used creme de avette, which is, I guess, similar but slightly different, and it had, instead of this lavender hue, it uh-huh. had, like, kind of a copper-colored hue. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, it was... How did it affect the taste? It tasted relatively similar. Interesting. Except their recipe, because people like sugar, I guess, had simple syrup in it, and Ugh. that I did not care for. Blech. Yeah. So that's interesting. You you actually ordered it at a bar, because it's not a cocktail that I had ever heard of before until you started talking about it. Well, I don't know that I would have ordered it, except for they had it on their cocktail menu, and so oh. I was like, well, I want to see how it tastes here. Yeah. How yeah. they do it. So I'm going to have a drink of my cocktail. Okay, I'm going to give mine a try here. Now, I'm not a, typically a gin fan, so... We'll see. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I like it. I already knew I liked it. But... Yes, you did, because you drink it. I like it. So what are you going to tell me today that is related to the aviation? So there was a lot of options. Yeah, I'd imagine. A lot of aviation capers. I'm not doing D.B. Cooper, because I hate D.B. Cooper's story. He's really overdone. I just don't like that story. Every podcast has done him. I'm doing... The hijacking of TWA Flight 847. Okay. So, remember in the 80s, like, planes were getting hijacked, like, Left and right. constantly. Yeah. So. Nothing to do today. Hey, let's hijack a plane. This was, it, it started on June 14th, 1985. Uh-huh. TWA Flight 847 was a flight from Cairo to San Diego with scheduled stops in Athens, Rome, Boston, and L.A. Okay. As you said that, I was trying to think, how would they go? What direction would they go from Cairo to wherever you said? San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. They would go through Athens, Rome, Boston, and L.A. Apparently, (laughs) that's the way they would go. It answered my question. finally, San Diego. And finally, San Diego. But they, alas, did not make it to San Diego. (laughs) I can imagine, hence the story. So... Right after taking off from their stop in Athens, the flight was hijacked by two men. The men were both Arabic speakers. They were found to be Lebanese, and they had smuggled a pistol and two grenades through security. Wow. Because 80s, and you could do right. that. Right. Okay, so in 1989, 88, 89, I, am, I went to Europe with um, a student group. And on the way home, we got these little, like, um, pull tab things and I pulled my little tab and I won a um, free drink or something and I wanted champagne because I was 
17. And so I thought that would be fancy. And the waitress did not want to give me champagne because it was a free drink, not wine. And I don't know why wine is different, but apparently it costs more or something. So this man sitting next to me who did not speak any English, and I had no idea what country he was from, just insisted, like pointed and pointed heatedly at the champagne. She wants champagne. Get her champagne. So I got my champagne and he got champagne and we toasted and we sat there and smiled at each other and then came time for us to take out our passports and he was from Iraq. And it was 89. I remember thinking, oh, but they so weren't take me home and marry me. <laughs> Give my dad some sheep. That was during the Iran-Iraq <laughs> wars too. Yes. That's why I, you know, why I took notice of it. My neighbor growing up, there was a girl, well, a family that were from Iran and the father was over there, like somehow participating in this fighting. I think he was like a higher up, like higher level person. Cause a, he moved his family to California and B, yeah. he was flying back and forth from time to time. Yeah. Which they shut down after a while. Yeah. But yeah, she like I didn't really know too much about it other than oh my dad's in fighting in the Iran Iraq War. Crazy. It's like okay. Um. So anyway. Yeah. Uh. One of the men later was identified as Muhammad Ali Hamadi, who had ties to Hezbollah, and the second person has not still not to, been identified to this day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So during the hijacking, the plane was diverted from its original destination of Rome to Beirut, Lebanon, which they were Lebanese, so that makes sense. Uh-huh. At, Why didn't they just buy tickets? <laughs> right? <laughs> they wanted the whole plane. <laughs> At Beirut International Airport, 19 passengers were allowed to leave in exchange for fuel. Prior to landing in Beirut, air traffic control almost refused to allow them to land until the captain argued re- repeatedly. The captain reportedly said... Quote, he has pulled a hand grenade pin and is ready to blow up the aircraft if he has to. We must, I repeat, we must land in Beirut. We must land in Beirut. No alternative. Quote. We must land a plane with a live hand grenade that's been pulled open. In your airport. Move over. It's Beirut. Everyone has a hand grenade, right? (laughs) I guess. I don't, I would be rather (laughs) reluctant to let them come park in my parking lot. Yeah. How? Okay. So yes, <laughs> I understand that. But what are you supposed to do? Just like let nope. the plane crash? Right. No, they, they'd have. Yeah. Um, so in 1985, Lebanon was in the midst of a civil war with sectors being controlled by the Shia militia, Amal and Hezbollah in the other sector. So, so reportedly these hijackers were with Hezbollah. So later that afternoon, the airplane flew across the Mediterranean to Algiers, where 20 passengers were released, and then the plane returned to Beirut. There's a lot of back and forth back and forthing going on. Okay. So during the second stop in Beirut, a U.S. Navy diver, Robert Stetham, was beaten, shot in the right temple, dumped off the plane, and then shot again. Holy goodness! So. Apparently he's been shot in the temple and they shoot him again. Yeah. Throw him off a plane and, and then, then shoot, shoot him, him again. again. So apparently the hijackers had, I'm assuming he died. He died. Yeah. yeah. The hijackers had been routinely beating all of mi- any military passengers. Also during the stop, there were seven American passengers with Jewish sounding names. They were taken off the plane and held hostage in a Shia prison. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yes. So on Saturday, June 15th, the plane 
went back to Algiers. About 12 well-armed men had joined the hijackers this time. And once they were in Algiers, 65 passengers and all five of the female crew members were released. That's nice. Yeah. But that poor pilot who's having to fly and fly and fly, he's probably had no sleep, probably no food or water, I'm assuming. Too bad he wasn't female. He would have been released. Yeah. Good. Like, there are, are some positive aspects to sexism in the 80s. Yes. Oh, they're fragile. Let them go. Mm, that's a good cocktail. It is good. So, the hijackers made statements about wanting to fly to Tehran, but they returned to Beirut instead, and they landed there on Sunday, June 16th. Okay. They really like How Beirut. How many days has this been going on by now? It's two days now. Uh, the hijackers' initial demands were they wanted release of 17, or the Kuwait 17, which were 17 Kuwaitis that were involved in the 1983 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait. They wanted release of all 766 Lebanese Shias being held in Israelis at Liet prison. And they wanted international con- condemnation of the U.S. <clears throat> I feel like that's one of the gimmies where you're just like, okay, yeah, U.S. is condemned. Also, like, <laughs> we take it back as soon as you let these people go. Nobody's going to release all those prisoners. No, that's a lot. So then by Monday, June 17th, the 40 remaining passengers had been taken from the plane and they were being held hostage in Beirut. So President Reagan intervened and he eventually was Super able... Reagan to the rescue. Yes. He was able to get the last remaining passengers and crew released. According to the FBI website, the hijacker Muhammad Ali Hamadi was indicted in November of 1985. And yeah, a heavyweight belt. Yeah. Oh, what's wrong Muhammad Wrong Ali. Muhammad Ali. So he was <laughs> indicted in November 1985. Interpol put out a red notice, which is basically like a giant warrant, inter- like international warrant. And a reward of $250,000 was offered leading to Hamadi and his accomplices arrest. So huh. then finally, in 1987, on January 13th, Hamadi was arrested in Frankfurt at the airport, and he was carrying explosives in his luggage. No way. Yeah. He was going to do it again? He was going to do it again. Well, get away with it one time. Yeah, why not? Try it again. So the U.S. fought for extradition, but Germany decided they were going to prosecute. So May 17th, 1989, Hamadi was convicted of murder, which is the Navy man, um, Uh hostage-taking, assault, and hijacking. He was sentenced... Oops. Things were falling there. It's all right. The world was falling. (laughs) So he was sentenced to life in prison, but he was released on December 15th, 2005, and he returned to Beirut, where he presumably lives to this day. Not in prison. Or does he? Right. Not in prison. Not in prison. Like he's supposed to be. Yes. And so I, like, I remember when this was going on, like, you can look up the news footage Uh if you YouTube it and, like, put in the Beirut hijacking, and you'll see news footage from, like, when this was all taking place. Wow. I'm sure I probably watched some of it. Yeah, yeah. I, after watching it, I was on YouTube recently. I was like, well, this seems familiar. Like, Uh I kind of remember, but I was really young, so. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, You were younger than me. I always will be. You always will be. Whatever. So, the reason those people were able to do that was because of my people. So, I'm going to start with a quote. Isn't it astonishing that all of these secrets have been preserved for so many years just so we could discover them? 
And that's a quote by my one of my people. And I will tell you who it is later. So mommy and daddy, Susan and Milton, had seven children. Sadly, the twins, Otis and Ida, died in infancy. The middle two boys were four years apart, but they were absolutely best friends and partners in curiosity and all their playing. And Otis and Ida were the twins? Otis and Ida were the twins. Otis and Ida are such hipster baby names. <laughs> well, given that this was the 1850s, I don't think they were hipsters. They probably had the same but mustaches. I mean, can you just imagine someone pushing their double bob and they're like, Otis and Ida are really happy to be here. <laughs> I can, with a mustache like these guys had too. That's funny. Otis and Ida. Otis and Ida. Well, these... these are pretty hipster names too. Like this, it's it's. I guess hipsters are going for the 1850s. They've got the 1850 look. They do the mustache. Uh huh. The baby the names. names. <laughs> so mom and dad were um, met, and this is what was really cool to me. He was he was a minister. He was traveling for the United Brethren Church, and she was attending a United Brethren College. Oh. In the 1850s, she was attending college. That's pretty, I mean, it, that's awesome. Yeah. But. I, very, very cool, I think. So anyway, both being learned people, they encourage intellectual pursuits for their children. I just realized the college that I work at was founded in the 1880s. Yeah, but that was founded as a teacher's college. Yeah, but so women. that's where women went. That's true. Because that's what women could do. You could be a teacher or a nurse. Which of those two things would you like to do when you grow up, Susie? Would you like to be a homemaker, a teacher, or a nurse? <laughs> those are your only options. Pick one. <laughs> so, like, you know how in elementary school there's like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the girls, it's like just a check mark. You can check one, <laughs> A, B, or C. <laughs> That's funny. I would have checked homemaker. My grandmother actually went to college when it was still, not not the college you work at, but this one that she went to was still a normal school. And she only had to go for three years to get her teaching certificate. Well, that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And that was in early-ish 1900s. She had to quit high school and start, go to the normal college and start teaching. Well, she didn't quit high school. She did high school in three years. So she finished her junior and senior year at the same time. And then she had to go and get her teaching certificate so that she could help pay her brother's way through dental school. Oh, well, that's nice of her. Yeah. I don't think it was an option. I think she was told, this is mm -hmm. what you will do. But anyway, teaching taught her, treated her quite well. So anyway, dad travels. He's traveling around for his job as a minister and he's bringing home little treats and things for the kids. So in 1878, he comes home with a little toy helicopter that was made out of paper, bamboo, and cork. And it had a little rubber band to twirl the rotor. And it was about a foot long. And Wilbur and Orville. Oh, I was trying to remember their names because I figured that's what this was. <laughs> and I remembered Orville, but I couldn't remember the other. Yeah. So Wilbur. we usually hear it. Orville and Wilbur, right? But Wilbur was oldest, so I don't know why we don't say Wilbur and Orville. I feel like we should. All right, so, yeah, Orville and Wilbur, right. So they played with this little toy until they broke it, and then they started, they built a new one. And they, later in life, both of them credited their interest in flying from that toy. That's where it started, was from that little wind-up helicopter toy. That's kind of cool. Which is really cool, yeah. 
So just this is sad. Just before high school graduation for Wilbur in 1884, the family dad's job was not unstable, but he was kind of controversial, and they didn't. I didn't find out why, but they had to like suddenly leave Richmond, Indiana, and go back to Dayton where they had been prior to the kids being born. Like, boom, we gotta go. Oh, that's weird. Yes. Like up and up and leave left. in the middle of the night. Pretty much. That's what it sounded like. So he did not get his diploma from Richmond. And then right after they arrived in Dayton, before he could even get anything going to his first school, he was, he'd always been very athletic. And he was in a hockey accident and got smacked in the face with a stick. Oh my gosh. He was okay, but it knocked out his two front teeth and it kind of like just destroyed his ambition. I bet I know what he wanted for Christmas. Right? <laughs> they, they was probably a little harder to come by in the 1880s. So it destroyed his ambition? Like, he just gave up? He just gave up. He didn't go back to school. He never finished high school. He was planning on going to Yale. Never went to college. Stayed home. It said he was homebound for a number of years. Like, he probably had depression. Yeah. Because he got smacked in the face. Because you don't just get a tooth knocked out, and then all of a sudden you're like, now I can't go to Yale. <laughs> right. It did... Either the him feeling that he was not attractive anymore or, you know, injury-causing depression. I don't know. But also, Mom was very ill at the time. So he, it was good because he stayed home and took care of so, Mom yeah, dying of tuberculosis. Because, you know, if you were going to die in those days, it was going to be tuberculosis. So Orville, the younger brother, who is four years younger, was very eager to get a head start on his life. So he was going to high school in the new place in um, Dayton. And he dropped out after his junior year and opened a print shop in 1889. Oh, wow. With a press that he had built. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I built a press. Let's open a print shop. That's something your husband would do. Right? So the boys, Wilbur joined him in the print shop, and that kind of got Wilbur coming back into life. They started a weekly newspaper called The West Side, Dad had run a paper for the United Brethren Church for years, so they kind of came by it naturally. Um, in 1890, they attempted to make the paper a daily called the Evening Item, but it wasn't very successful. So then they moved their press towards a more commercial venture. Venture. Now, this I found interesting as well. This was a very progressive family. A friend and classmate of Orville's, Orville's Lawrence Dunbar, allowed had his paper printed in their shop and Otis actually, or Orville actually did some editing for him. And his paper was the Dayton Tadler. Oh. Which is an African-American newspaper that became absolutely famous. And they have, it's been revived and it's printed now as well. So I thought that was neat that here he is in the 1890s friends with an African-American person, which probably wasn't done often. I'm looking at pictures of him now. Orville is totally a hipster. Yes, he is. <laughs> and Wilbur's not smiling. I mean, not that they smiled much, but... Wilbur doesn't smile even in, like, his child pictures. Mm -mm. They're super cute, though, in the little kid pictures. So in December 1892, the boys decided to capitalize on this crazy new craze that was sweeping the nation, and they opened a bicycle shop. Which, awesome. Yes. Um... The invention of the safety bicycle really got bicycling going as a pastime. And in 1896, they even started to manufacture their own brand of bicycle. 
That would be awesome to yes. have. Yeah, I want to look that up. I didn't look it up, but that would be really neat. So they're in the bike shop and this old interest of flying reappears. Flying had been in the news quite a bit. There was a man, there were several people that were trying it, gliding specifically. And Otto Lilenthal, I don't know, was killed in a hang gliding experiment. And the boys had really admired his career and they were like, well, we need to make this better. We need to make this safer and do it better. So the previous to my research at this point got into just technical, technical, crazy stuff. And it was way over my head. But apparently previous to their design, the wings had been like completely fixed and didn't move or flex at all. Oh, and well, that's wrong. Yeah, there was a belief that the pilot could not, did not have reflex flexes quick enough to adjust wing the flaps. Yeah, or... the flaps or wing um, articulation or wherever it Ooh, is. Good word. Thank you. I can still pull that out after this many cocktails and that many beers last night. Fast enough to do what he needs to do in the wind and they were just better off fixed. So Orville and Wilbur completely disagreed with this. They started watching birds and how they shifted their wings when they wanted to go up or down or turn. And they noticed that the birds kind of banked into the turn like you do in a bicycle and their wings sort of rotated. They actually ended up calling it... Um, wing warping oh yeah so by 1900 they had built a small glider type kite thing they could control it on the ground with strings and sticks and this really helped them to hone their wing design um there's a description of them just really puzzling over this once in the bike shop and wilbur is standing there playing with a big cardboard box that a tube had come in and was like twisting it around and they'd been puzzling and puzzling over this dilemma and he's twisting this box and then it just kind of hits them oh look at what i'm doing and so they designed the glider somehow with that i didn't really understand so basically it. they had like a kite kind of deal that they would fly in the air and manipulate the wings from yes, strings from the strings to see what worked best oh, okay. before they built a bigger one they maintained that the key to flight was a structure that would flex and give it would make it more unstable, but just like riding a bicycle with balance and practice, you can control a unstable thing. Yeah. So they thought course. a pilot can just use balance and practice and they'll get it. Um, they redesigned their glider in 1901 with larger wings and they're doing their testing at this point in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. They started experimenting there because of the regular breezes and the soft sandy surface for landing. It was less harsh on the glider. It wouldn't break. It didn't. So it was the soft sandy landing was less harsh on the glider and didn't break as easily. So the they changed the wings in 1901 and made it bigger. And this made the glider able to glide longer but it still wasn't right it actually gave them less control having the larger wings so they tried again in 1902 and by this time they designed the double decker style that you see in, in a lot the of pictures, the early planes yeah. yeah so the lift performance was great they really liked it and it it gave an almost level 
straight across flight. So they started trying it as a glider. They would lay down. So these are big. They're not like little kites. These are big because this one, the man could actually lay down kind of across the body in the center part with his head up towards the wings and his legs down towards the... Um, like a hang glider. Yeah, kind of, but he's actually laying on the apparatus. An interesting thing that they talked about here, they said, so when it would coming in for landing, the pilot would have to scoot back and drop their legs down in this little hole so that they could run with it. And then they discovered they didn't even need to do that. They had so much control of it that they could actually just land it. Like on their belly. On their belly. And the pilot could just stay laying there on their belly. So they soon discovered that there was an issue with the fixed rudder in the back where the feet are. And so they changed it to a maneuverable rudder that was controlled by cables by the pilot. So now they have the controlled flight that they wanted. And they're very happy with it. And then they wanted to add power because Men. what boy doesn't want, right? That's exactly what I thought. I'm like, what boy doesn't want to put make something faster? So I feel like the, these guys are related to your husband. <laughs> yes. I can completely see him doing this. So they, they again try to find somebody to build it for them the motor can't find anybody to build the motor so they go back to the bike shop and their shop mechanic charlie taylor says hey i can build your motor so he built a an aluminum i wrote this down i can't see it anyway he built an oh, aluminum cast motor um in just six weeks i wonder if you can't buy it you make it I wonder if old-timey bike mechanics worked for beer like they do today. <laughs> you have bike mechanics that work for beer? Bike mechanics, well, they get paid, but they also, like, work better if you give them beer. Oh, that's funny. I'm it's well known. I'm sure he probably did. I can see him with his striped shirt with the garters on it. And, and his, the leather apron. And the leather apron and his mustache, his hipster mustache and his leather hat i think thing. we know that guy actually we like totally know that from guy. one of the infamous tweed rides we've done <laughs> that's funny we'll have to ask him when we see him did you build orville and wilbur's aluminum motor for their plane so he does it in six weeks in 1903 they built the Wright flight one it was made from spruce and muslin muslin they had designed and carved their own propellers from what couldn't find propellers they liked with the right curve they made their own. Again, I can see how they're related to your husband. They're very, they're very husband. They're very husband. I am not related to Orville and Wilbur. I am related to Amelia Earhart, though. Mm, that's right. Yes. Speaking of aviation. Speaking of aviation. So the first airplane cost, this is crazy. Apparently, the government was, was giving money to people to solve the flight problem. And they had given some guy $50,000. That's a billion dollars. Right only to watch the thing sink into the Potomac twice. Ooh. Yeah. So Orville and Wilbur built theirs for $1,000. That's very reasonable. Yes. Had a wingspan of 43, 40 feet, weighed 605 pounds, had a 12 horsepower, 185 pound engine. So off they go to Kitty Hawk to give it a try. Um, because of its size, they can't push it. So they have to start it to start it like they did the glider. So they have to build a launching track and it was 60 feet and they called that the Grand Junction Railroad. Huh, that's funny. Yeah. So they, things didn't go perfectly smoothly. There was weather problems. There was equipment failures and breakage. The first good weather day, this is so cute. The first 
day that they had that was really good weather was Sunday, December 13th. But they were good United Brethren men, and they did not work on Sunday. Aw. So they waited until Monday, December 14th, which was cold and yucky and had a really bad headwind. But they did it anyway. So Wilbur's behind the controls Monday, December 14th, 1903. The Wright flight made a valiant second attempt, and they made adjustments and repairs. And then on December 17th, they tried again. And this time, Orville was behind the controls, and at 10.35 a.m., he flew 120 feet for 12 seconds at 6.8 miles an hour into a freezing headwind of 27 miles an hour. I was going to say, how do you go that slow? But if you're in that heavy of a headwind, I can see that. Yeah. So this is the photograph. Okay. Because they had invited all the reporters to see this one, and and everybody was there. Um, And so this is the photograph that you see. And this is the only photograph that you'll see because they never allowed reporters back again. Again, I like these people more and more. Yeah. They were very concerned with people ripping them off because they hadn't copyrighted anything yet or trademarked anything yet. And they were very concerned with people stealing their ideas and designs. Oh, and it would have happened. Oh, easily. I'm sure it did happen. So we'll get more into that later. So they did three more flights that day, and the next two went 175 feet and 200 feet, respectively, with an altitude of 10 foot. So they're 10 feet in the air, which is kind of cool. Um, the last one started just afternoon, and it covered 852 feet, and there, what they were in the air for an entire minute. But the landing damaged the plane too much for any more attempts that day, so they went home. And they're determined to do this again. They're going to concentrate. They decided we need to focus on flying full time. If we're going to make a go of this and make this so that we can sell it, we need to exit ourselves from the bike shop. So these guys aren't rich, which is why they decided at that point to no longer allow reporters to come and look at their experiments because they wanted to to not get their ideas stolen. So in 1904, they have the Flyer 2. They didn't want to take it to Kitty Hawk just because of the added expense of traveling. So they just took it down the road to a cow pasture in Dayton. Um, They did not invite the reporters this time. The reporters had been rather cruel the last time and they didn't want to risk details of their their plane getting out before they got patent. So the, the winds are less helpful in Ohio so they built a longer starting rail. They made many attempts over the next several days and made adjustments each time. On October 13th, Wilbur exceeded the best Kitty Hawk results with a 1,300-foot flight. Oh, wow. Yeah. 1904. They got it. Then they got the idea that they want to use, like, a catapult-type weight power device to assist in the takeoffs with the rail thing. So this really helped. And on September 20th, 1904, so just over a month later, Wilbur flew a complete circle and covered 4,080 feet. This was the first time that that had happened. That year, they had, you know, how they always measure pilots stuff in hours and flight time. So that year alone, by the end of that year, they had 50 minutes in the air and over 105 flights. Aww. So there were 50 minutes and 105 flights. <laughs> they kept, so most of those were much less than a minute. <laughs> <laughs> They kept working and improving, and the public was very skeptical, and the press was very cruel. They were very secretive about their invention. They refused to fly. Okay, so here now they have the thing. It's it's working, and they're trying to sell it, 
but they refused to fly it or even show it until they had a signed contract for the purpose purchase of an airplane. That makes it hard. Yes. They kind of shot themselves in the foot because people are not going to buy something that they cannot see first. Especially like the first thing of it. Yeah. Yeah, the first thing of it ever. And governments, they're trying to sell this to governments and all of the governments. They're writing to different governments frantically and all of the governments are like, Dearest uh, Libya, I'd like to sell you a plane. <laughs> they were focusing more on Europe and the United States. Dearest Austria. I think they probably did sell to, or tried to sell to Austria. So without demonstration, the press is just, they get mean. And on February 10th, 1906, a New York Herald writer wrote, The rights have flown. Or they have not flown. They possess a machine, or they do not possess one. They are either flyers or liars. Ooh, that's good. It is difficult to fly. It is easy to say we have flown. Um, he later ate his words and apologized and felt badly for being so harsh. I think he just wanted to use that pun. Yes. They are either flyers or liars. That should be the title of this episode. They are flyers, flyers or, or liars. liars. So they spend all of 1906 and 1907 trying to get someone to buy a plane. Finally, France so showed some interest. The United States just shut them down. They were not interested at all. So they go to France in 1907. They shipped the, their new plane, which is called the Model A Flyer, ahead. While they're in France with their plane, they meet, there's big dog, they meet Lieutenant Frank P. Lom. And he mentioned that the Army Signal Corps is asking for bids for a flying machine. And so the Wrights submitted their bid. In early of 1908, they finally had a contract from France. So we're going to put on a demonstration. But France said, well, we want the plane to carry two people. Oh, well. Yeah. Two tiny people. How about that? <laughs> well, back to the drawing board they go, and they have to readjust things and put in a seat and try again. So little old Charlie Furness, their helper from Dayton, became the very first passenger in an airplane ever. That's pretty cool. Like, yeah. Nobody can say it. He's the only one that can say that. He's the only one that can say that. There's, there's another person who gets to say she's the first woman, though. So on August 8th, 1908, the brothers put, a, put on a public demonstration in France. They were a huge hit, instantly world famous. October 7th, 1908, Edith Berg was the wife of the brothers' European agent, became the first woman passenger. And they, she thought it was wonderful. I do not understand what he is barking at out there. Yeah, the dog is going crazy. There's probably a cat. We have feral cats. We live next to a park. Don't dump your cats in a park. The people who live by it don't like it. They don't want fleas in their dogs. Constantly. I even said to the dog groomer, I'm like, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this. And she's, well, gosh, that's so weird. And I said, well, we have a lot of feral cats because we live next to the park. And she says, there's your problem. Get rid of the cats, get rid of the fleas. So on September 17th, Army Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge was a passenger when Orville was giving another demonstration. And the propeller split in two at 100 feet. Ooh. Yes. This is the first major, major, major crash. Lieutenant Selfridge had a skull fracture that resulted in his death, and Orville was severely injured. He broke his leg in several places and broke his hip, and his hip actually never healed properly after that. Catherine, his younger sister, who was a teacher. Oh, teacher. I was like, <laughs> nurse or teacher? I don't know. She comes and she says, 
Orville, are you afraid to fly again? And he said, the only thing I'm afraid of is not getting to finish this test. Because they really wanted to sell their plane. So they continued the tests in France and working with the French government. Huge success. Um, upon their return to the United States, President Taft invites them to the White House and gives them all kinds of awards. And on May 25th, 1910, the boys got permission from their dad to fly together. They had promised him, they took her, their, they promised dad that they would never fly together so that they could avoid a double tragedy because dad didn't want to lose both of his sons. Since they already lost a pair of twins, a yeah. set of twins. But they took their sister up in the plane. So wouldn't that be just as a double tragedy to lose your son and your daughter? Almost. Almost, right? Because that's, you know, two boys are better. Anyway, so they got special permission because things had gone so well and things were relatively safe. So dad let them fly together and they flew for six minutes. And then next, Orville took his 82-year-old father up in the plane. Aww. They flew for seven minutes and as they're going up to an altitude of over 350 feet, sweet little 82-year-old dad calls out to his son, Higher, Orville, higher! Aww. Isn't that cute? That's so cute. So I'm trying to find where to end this because it just goes on and on and on and on. The story never... I mean, it eventually ends. What? What? Wilbur actually dies soon. But I'm trying to think of where to end it. And I read that quote and I'm like, that's my ending right there. That's so sweet. It's really sweet. That's the right brothers. That was I okay, that was good. I didn't know very much about them at all. Yes. I'm I, very glad that I did the Wright brothers. I knew they were from Ohio. I knew they flew in Kitty Hawk. That's about it. Yeah. I knew they had a bike shop. Oh, I knew they had reason. a bike shop, yeah, yeah. I did know that. But I didn't realize that they had so many starts and stops. And it's interesting that they were so stubborn with their their ideas as far as not we're not going to demonstrate this unless you have a contract yeah it just seems a little backwards because once you show it everybody's going to buy it well and like it's the first thing so how can you sell it without people knowing what they're getting yes like, i could buy a car with a sight unseen because i you know what a car i know what is. they do yeah yeah but you wouldn't buy you would not have bought a smartphone sight unseen oh no you'd be like what's wrong with this phone why do I need to spend that amount of money on that like, phone? This phone flips. It's better. <laughs> it's better. Actually, I think that the service on some of those flip phones was better. In some it was places. better. But we're not experts. We're just drunks. Yeah. So what if people like this and they want to talk to us? They can contact us. There's How? a number of ways. Okay. What? So you can email us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. And we also... Would be happy to have your cocktail suggestions. Yes, please send us cocktail ideas. Um, you can talk to us on Facebook, but at Facebook at Crime and Time on the Rocks. We're on Instagram too. We're at Crime and Time, and Child Number One handles our Instagram. It's for adorable. the most part. So. It's adorable. Um, and Twitter, we're at Crime and Time. So tweet at us, or you know, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Thank you for listening.